Well, welcome again to another podcast, Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded. I'm your host, Irv Risch. And today, we're going to be looking at the Lord's High Priestly Prayer in John 17 with the writings of Keith uh, Gorgas. And uh, let me just uh, mention one thing. I've listened to men pray at prayer meetings, and I've heard some beautiful prayers, some wonderful prayers that were from the heart. But today we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. We're going to see God's heart and just how God prayed for us we ought to learn to pray for one another. Pray for the salvation of those that are near and dear to us, and even our neighbors, our friends, and even those that uh, are haters of God. We are to pray for our enemies. We are to do good to those that despitefully use us. With that said, I just want to just get into this uh, chapter and see what Keith has to say about the Lord's Prayer. So with that said, let us just uh, start our reading. John chapter 17. A layman looks at John's Gospel. We have now come to a most beautiful and unique portion of the Bible, the Lord Jesus' intercessory prayer for those who followed him. In it he vocalizes his love and devotion to his Father, and he articulates his love and care for his own sheep. Jesus spoke these things, and raising his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, just as you gave him authority over all mankind, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. The Lord had come to the end of his earthly ministry, and all that remained was to be betrayed and murdered. He shared the Last Supper with his disciples and told them of the Father's house and the Holy Spirit. He sets an example for us here. It's a privilege when we come together, as the time comes to separate, to come together before our Father and pray for one another, entrusting one another to our Father's tender care. In the Old Testament, sins were covered, awaiting the reconciliation of the cross. God could defer the judgment of sin until the cross. Now all those sins would be atoned for and all future sins too. The work on the cross provided a just and righteous ground to forgive sins and impart eternal life. God's holiness was vindicated during the three hours when darkness covered the face of the whole earth and Jesus was made sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. When he cried out, finished, the work was done, once for all. God was completely satisfied concerning the whole question of sin, and having raised Jesus from among the dead, he has seated him in glory at his right hand. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the fulcrum on which every soul's eternal destiny pivots. Any attempt to know God apart from his Son Jesus Christ is an exercise in failure. The God of this world, Satan, assumes many forms to appeal to worshippers, but the only true God is found only through his Son. The Muslim's devotion to Allah or the Native American's worship of the Great Spirit may be sincere and passionate, but they have a false object of worship and are on the broad road that leads to destruction. I glorified you on the earth by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. And now you, Father, 
glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. The Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, veiled his glory in becoming a man. He took upon himself the form of a servant, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He lived his life always doing the Father's will and revealing the Father to those who the Father had given him. Because of that, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess to the glory of God that Jesus is Lord. I have revealed your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have followed your word. We are the Father's love gift to his beloved Son. Think about that for a while. What could be more secure? Will God be frustrated in giving this gift? No, it is as sure as the sunrise. My eternal security doesn't rest in my wise decision to accept Christ or to persevere to the end, but in that I'm part of the Father's gift to His Son. Now they have come to know that everything which you have given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. We read in the first chapter of this gospel that as many as received him, to them gave he the power, authority, to become the children of God, even to those who believed on his name. It is for those that the Lord now prays to his Father. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on the behalf of those whom you have given me, because they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. The Lord's concern is not for the world at large but for his sheep whom he would soon be leaving. They were a shared possession with his Father and we find the Lord Jesus enjoying their mutual care for these sheep. We live in an age when young people are encouraged to emancipate themselves from their parents as soon as possible, become their own selves, and develop their independency of their parents as much as they can. I believe this is satanic in origin. Do we ever see a trace of this in the Lord Jesus and his relationship with his Father? Never. He always, even here just before the cross, rejoiced in doing his Father's will in everything, representing his Father, and maintaining his Father's interests. I am no longer going to be in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I am coming to you. The Lord was about to make his triumphant return to the courts of glory, and take his place at his Father's right hand. He had finished the work that his Father gave him to do. Now their sheep, so loved and cared for would be left in the world to carry on the work. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, so that they may be one just as we are. What was utmost on the Lord's heart? That they may be one, even as we are one. That is a unified, not a singular one. The Lord Jesus died that he might gather together in one all the children of God who were scattered abroad. The Lord said that whoever does not gather with him scatters the saints. Some years ago, at a Bible conference, I heard a man say that this verse means only a positional one, not a practical one. I believe this is a gross misunderstanding, at the very best, and a doctrine of demons at worst. Is the union of the Father and Son a mere theoretical or positional union, or is it a practical unity? I believe the teaching of Scripture is that it is a very practical union, woven into everything that God does. The Lord continues His prayer to His Father. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished except the Son of Destruction, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. The eternal security of the believer is rooted, not in his own ability to keep himself, but in the very nature and power of God.
the Lord manifested this keeping power among his disciples while here on earth. None were lost except Judas, the son of destruction, or perdition, who was chosen for the very task of betraying the Lord, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. It is not that Judas was saved and then became lost, but that he never, from the heart, believed and was never born again. The Disciples in the World But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The Lord had acquainted the disciples with the source of his joy, doing the Father's will, and now as he prepared to leave them and return to the Father, he was asking the Father to maintain the same relationship with them as he had. The Gospel of John began with, In the beginning was the Word. Now the Lord Jesus had committed that Word to his followers, and it separated them from this world. Though they had yet to experience it in full, they would soon learn that the world hated them, because they were no longer of this world, but heavenly people. As he is, so are we in this world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them away from the evil one. The Lord could just take us home when we get saved and spare us a lot of trouble and conflict, but that is not his purpose. We are left here to learn and to bear fruit for God, so his prayer is that we are kept from the power of the evil one. Through trials and suffering, falling and rising, we learn the heart and ways of God. We learn his grace and keeping power. We learn to patiently suffer with him and for him, and we earn a victor's crown. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Tis the treasure I've found in his love. That has made me a pilgrim below. We are no longer part of this world. We do not share its hopes and dreams or its way of doing things. We are citizens of heaven, marching through a wilderness, in search of a city whose builder and maker is God. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. While new birth gives us a life that is separate from this world, the word of God changes our behavior and sanctifies us. As we feed on it, it cleans us from the inside out. Just as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, so that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. We have not been left here to live a life of ease and self-fulfillment, nor are we here to make the world better. We have been commissioned to carry on the Lord's work in His absence, to declare the glorious gospel, and display the heart of God, His light and His love, in a dark and perishing world. We are here to rescue the perishing. It is His truth that sanctifies us, that sets us apart. I am not asking on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The Lord's prayer was not just for those who were with him at the time, but for us now. He prayed on behalf of all who would believe in him through their word. That includes us today. What was his prayer for us? That we may be one, even as he and the Father are one. That was only for the early church, we hear people say today, too much water has gone over the dam for the church to act as one. Too much difference of opinion and firmly held traditions to be put aside. Was the Lord asking his Father for something unattainable? Something beyond possible? Or is the problem that we are too proud to repent of the sin of dividing? Are we incapable of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God? The Lord desired this display of unity. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me.
the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer to His Father. Disciples' Future Glory The glory which you have given me I also have given to them, so that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and you love them, just as you love me. It may seem that I am being repetitive about believers being one, but if so, the Lord Himself was repetitive to His Father, and the Holy Spirit was repetitive in quoting His prayer in this chapter. I suggest that the fact the Lord repeated His desire over and over is because it is of august importance to Him, and it should be to us. Let us contemplate just what our Lord says in connection with this truth. He says that the reason He has shared His glory with us, the glory that the Father gave Him is so that we might be one, even as the Godhead is one. I know Christians, and perhaps you do too, who glory in their separation from other believers. They latch on to one strand or another of doctrine, and wrestle it out of its place, torturing its meaning, and then in pseudo-holiness find it needful to separate from any other Christians who do not share their view. They will hang their heads in shame at the coming of our Lord. There is only one body, only one church recognized by Scripture. There is one fellowship, into which all saints have been called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one hope of our calling. One the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down and baptized 120 individual Christians into one body. By one Spirit have we all been baptized into one body. That body is the Church, the Bride of Christ. All other associations are man-made and fall short of encompassing the whole Church. In a word, they are sects or sections of the Church, which is contrary to the revealed mind of God. It grieves our Lord, who died that He might gather together in one all the children of God around the world. Once this truth gets a hold of your soul, seek grace to walk in it. Faith sees right through the walls of separation and embraces every member of Christ as my brother for whom Christ died. The only fellowship that Scripture teaches us is a union based on a common life source. I'm not suggesting setting up some new system or creating a new sect or fellowship but urging us to continue in that which is from the beginning as John wrote in his epistles. We can't put Humpty Dumpty back together, nor should we try to. We must recognize the shipwreck of public testimony that we are part of, confess our part in it to the Lord, and walk in freedom from it. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. The full revelation of the truth of the Church as the Bride of Christ remained a mystery until it was told forth by the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, but clearly the Lord has it before his heart as he concludes his prayer. His desire is that we might be with him, where he is, and see the glory that the Father has given him. The truth of the eternal Sonship of Christ is seen clearly here. The love between the Father and the Son is eternal, from before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. In the 22nd Psalm, which depicts our Lord's crucifixion and records his thoughts and feelings as he hung on the tree, a break comes about halfway through. The Lord triumphantly declares that God has heard him and delivered him. He goes on to say, I will declare your name unto my brethren. He has made the Father's name known to those who have been pulled out of this world, and he will continue to make the Father's heart known to us so that the love with which the Father loved the Son may be in us. Not only that love, but the Lord himself will be in us.
that ends our reading. And uh, today I'm just going to bring out three points and then a closing thought uh, on this chapter. The first one is the Lord is coming to the point now where he's going to be hanging on the cross and he is going to finish the work of the Father. And this is the prayer that leads right up to that finishing work. The second point is that uh, the Christians are the only ones who have a God that prayed for them. And we have it recorded in this chapter. God prayed for you, prayed for me, but he didn't pray for the world. Now, he loved the world and he gave himself for the world. But the ones that belong to him are the ones that have accepted him as their Lord and Savior. And that's the question you have to ask yourself. Do you belong to God? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior? If you have, you'll obey his commandments. The last point is that uh, I ask you a question. Do you have an angry God or do you have a loving God? I have a loving God because I look at this prayer and I see how much God loved me, how much he prayed for me, and, and how much he's done for me already, uh, and he's got so much more waiting for me. We can't even start to imagine the inheritance that we have in Christ someday. And I think very soon I'm going to realize that. Then I'm going to close with one thought, one word, one, just one, one body, one Lord, one church, uh, everything is one. And the unity, there's unity in one, you know, and I can use this as an example. Keith wrote this paper and this is my podcast that I'm doing, what he has done and what I am doing is one. You know, I never met Keith. I've never met him, but I know him because I see his heart. I see his love for the Lord. And I hope he sees the love in me for the Lord. That makes us brothers and that makes us one in Christ. We're miles apart, but in unity, we're close together because we have the same mind of Christ and the heart for the Lord. With that said, I'm going to end our podcast today. And uh, till next time, we're going to be looking at uh, uh, chapter 18. So with that said, uh, bye for now.